0: Welcome to the Portugal Street Philosophy Podcast, where each episode, we take a deep dive into a philosophical topic in conversation with world-leading experts. I'm your host, Eric Chen. And joining me today as co-host is the president of the Philosophy Society, Karina Vassiliades. Thanks for joining us, Karina.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: This episode, our topic is mathematical philosophy, blessing or curse. And our guide to the topic is Professor Lawrence Huditsch. Lawrence Huditz is an assistant professor of philosophy in the Department of Philosophy, Logic, and Scientific Method at the London School of Economics. His research specializes in philosophy of science, logic, and philosophy of physics. His interests also include applications of logic and category theory to understanding the structure of scientific theories, as well as mathematical logic, ontology, and the philosophy of mathematics. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Professor Lawrence Huditz.
2: Thanks very much. It's my pleasure to be here.
0: So just to jump right into the topic, could you give us a brief introduction uh, to
2: mathematical philosophy, what it is, and sort of what are prominent examples of it today? Sure. Um, So first of all, I think we need to uh, distinguish mathematical philosophy from philosophy of mathematics. So many people, when they first hear about mathematical philosophy, they think it's the philosophy of mathematics. So the philosophy of mathematics asks questions about, well, mathematics, about mathematical theories, mathematical practice, so that the, the target of philosophical um, inquiry in this field is mathematics itself. But what I mean by mathematical philosophy is something uh, very different, namely um, just philosophy Done by mathematical methods, so there is kind of no assumption uh, here about what the topic or the target of philosophical inquiry in mathematical philosophy is. Can be about anything, um, the only restriction is that it's done by means of mathematical methods. So it's a the distinction between mathematical philosophy and other types of philosophy is a purely methodological one. It doesn't say anything about the topic that uh, you know philosophers are looking at.
0: Right, so in principle, you could have these two axes and you could have a non-mathematical philosophy of mathematics, even if that's uh, probably rare in practice. But
2: exactly, yeah. Yeah, it's a bit rare in practice because if you start thinking about mathematics, it's often useful to use mathematical tools, especially logic. Um, but um, yeah, these are really just orthogonal axes. So one is about the topic that people look at, the other is about the methods people use. And and when I talk about mathematical philosophy, I only mean the methodology axis. I should probably also um, clarify one point here, namely when we talk about mathematical philosophy, we should clarify what we mean by mathematics. So many people, when they first hear about this, they think, oh, you know, this is just about numbers and calculating stuff, but that's not at all the case. Mathematics is um, basically a general theory of abstract structures nowadays. It's not just about numbers, right? There's geometry that deals with spatial relations. Uh, there's logic, logic is a part of, of mathematics. And um, probability theory, right, game theory that, you know, mathematically models strategic interactions between individuals, but also the theory of computation and the theory of automata, that is basically the foundation for computer science, all of that is part of mathematics. And we include all these things um, uh, as you know possible tools in mathematical philosophy. It's not just about arithmetic. So that's
0: a helpful distinction between uh, the two. I think it would be useful to perhaps give a more concrete example of Mm -hmm. what you think is a notable application of mathematical philosophy? So I guess here at LSE, when I think about this one prominent example that comes to mind is the application of these mathematical tools to decision theory and analyzing Mm -hmm. strategic behavior. Uh, Do you have a preferred example of where mathematical tools really bring something fruitful to a philosophical topic?
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, there are plenty of these questions i think um it might be helpful to to talk a little bit about the history of mathematical philosophy to understand the the context better and to see kind of where we are at the moment and you know kind of which highlights uh, we've seen in mathematical philosophy so far so um i think we can distinguish between two phases or stages in mathematical philosophy and it's not something that people have started doing very recently it's something really old so i think the first the early phase um you know starts with people like spinoza right spinoza wrote the book um ethics and and the subtitle of the book is well demonstrated in geometrical order ethics demonstrated in geometrical order so what Spinoza did was to take a, you know, a deductive approach, as it was used in geometry or in mathematics more generally in those days, and try to you know, develop an account of you know, God and morality and all these things in the same style by using by putting down fundamental assumptions, axioms, defining his concepts rigorously and then deriving theorems from the assumptions and the definitions. That's a deductive approach. And I think that's quite characteristic of the early phase of mathematical philosophy. The people, philosophers started um, using a way of doing philosophy that was inspired by mathematical rigor, by this deductive approach. That mathematicians used, and they just thought, "Oh, well, we can use the same approach for philosophy. Why not? Let's define our things rigorously. Let's put down our uh, assumptions explicitly as axioms. Then let's derive what follows from it. And that's how we kind of organize our philosophical ideas. That you know, let's build an you know a kind of a, a cathedral of ideas, right, where we have a foundation and then things are built on top um, in a step by step manner." And and that's the early phase. Another um another important figure in that early phase is Bernard Bolzano. Um maybe nobody of you has uh, heard of him so far. Very little, very few people uh know who Bernard Bolzano is, apart from a few experts. And maybe those of you who 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 went to my uh logic course. Um so Bernard Bolzano was an an Austrian, um, well, priest and theologian, but he was he started as a mathematician. He was extremely gifted as a mathematician, and he was one of those who um, helped build solid foundations for calculus for analysis. So that's the Bolzano-Weierstrass theorem, for example, that you learn in in a calculus course. So he was a genius in in maths. But then what happened was he, he kind of faced a crossroad. He wanted to make a difference. Uh, he wanted to make a positive impact in the world. And he thought if he becomes a professor of mathematics, that'll be hard for him. So the other option that he had, that he you know, kind of considered was um, becoming a theologian. And one of the reasons for this choice was that um, th- there was a chair at the Theological Institute in Prague, um, so Volzamer taught in Prague, and the chair had the obligation to deliver Sunday addresses to all the students of the university, um, so-called exhortations, where they, where the chair kind of, you know, you know, s- said things that should, you know, make the students better people and that's what attracted bolzano that's why he wanted to to uh, become a, th- a theologian and and take that take up that chair and that's what he did and he you know used that in order to you know um you know make make his students better people and have an impact on on them and on the world because you know they would go you know into the world and and do their things influenced by him um and he spread his very progressive enlightenment ideas that's not what the emperor uh, of the Austrian Empire liked, so they, um, you know, <laughs> um, got rid of him, and he was dismissed as a professor. And um, so it was—it's a fascinating story, um, a very very strange figure, and it's uh, not well known by by many. And what's important about Bolzano is that he—he's um, not just a brilliant mathematician and a an interesting um, figure in terms of uh, well spreading Enlightenment ideas in, in the Austrian Empire in the 19th century. He also was kind of the grandfather of analytic philosophy. And that's what many people don't know. So he wrote the book called Theory of Science or Philosophy of Science. And basically what he, what he does is, he does philosophy in a deductive approach. So he defines things rigorously. He... You know, proves things based on his assumptions. He makes the assumptions clear, so it's exactly this deductive approach again that we see in Bolzano's work. And he even did that in his uh, theological work. So he wrote the textbook on um, on religious studies, and it's it's marvelously rigorous. I mean, I've never seen something like that before. Um, So he defines what you know the what morality is, what religion is. Um, and then he you know, gives a proof for the existence of a supreme moral law from which all other moral truths follow logically. And there's also a deductive argument for the existence of God, and everything's kind of done in this neat mathematical style. And that's, I think where it begins, kind of where the rigorous approach, the deductive approach um, that mathematicians were using for you know centuries, used to um do philosophy in a similar style
1: can i ask so it seems like with philosophers and and mathematicians there seems to be very much this overlap between you know whether they were a mathematician first or even some philosophers um like for example i was really surprised to to learn that like um david hume had actually one of the principles for um Kind of, he had laid the foundations for the principle of extension that's then used later on in set theory. Um, so, I, what I kind of want to ask is, do you have any idea of what comes first, you philosophy know? or math? I kind of want because to. They grasp seem to be it. so mm. intertwined, and
2: yeah, I I think I wouldn't even want to distinguish between the two. It's very hard to say which one comes first. I mean, if you look at the historical figures who um, you know shape the way we do philosophy now, they all were. Interdisciplinary thinkers, you know, they, they all were philosophers and mathematicians and economists or and physicists or you know whatever their other subject was, but 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 everybody kind of was also doing philosophy on the side. Um, I mean, Gödel was a very philosophical person, it's one of the you know most important mathematicians of the 20th century, uh, of all times probably, um, and. Uh, and the same is true of people like Keynes, the you know, British economist, or, or Frank Ramsey, who is known for his contributions to e- economics, just as he is known for his contributions to philosophy and logic. So it's very hard, I think, to um, to tease these things apart. And I think we shouldn't do that. It's a bad thing to separate these things. I think it would be better to to, to move back to to a more integrated um way of thinking about the world and you know the the diverse problems we face i think the 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 these the distinctions between fields that we draw nowadays are basically just a bureaucratic division that that was important for organizing a university right with many people who need to be assigned to departments things like that but i think it it wasn't very useful from an epistemic point of view i think we we shouldn't draw these distinctions um or shouldn't well if we draw these distinctions that maybe that's fine we shouldn't put too much weight in, on 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 these distinctions
0: so you mentioned this is the early phase so um sort of characterized by spinoza and Bolzano, who kind of are the key originators of applying sort of deductive and mathematically rigorous Uh, methods to philosophical topics. Uh, So you call this the early stage. So this implies there's um, a later stage or maybe a middle stage. Um, Could you talk a bit about those?
2: Yeah, that's what I wanted to do now. Exactly. Um, So as I said, the early phase was characterized by doing philosophy in this deductive manner, by kind of mimicking how mathematicians organize their ideas. The later phase, I would say, is characterized by Now, using mathematics as a tool in philosophy. So this isn't the same thing. So now, you know, if you look at Spinoza, what he does is just he, you know, organizes his ethical ideas and theological ideas in a in a deductive way. But he doesn't use you know geometry um, proper, you know, um, to prove things about you know ethical laws. But in the later phase, we see exactly that happen. Um, philosophers discover mathematics or mathematical theories as tools that can be applied in philosophy. So it's basically applied maths in philosophy. And the the main intellectual movement I would like to mention here is the Vienna Circle. So the Vienna Circle was a group of, again, an interdisciplinary group of philosophers and scientists in Vienna um, uh, in the early 20th century. So uh, around 100 years ago, one of the prominent figures was Rudolf Carnap, but there were many others uh, involved in that circle. Wittgenstein was close to it. Um, Pop had some relationship with it. Um, and what the Vienna, what was characteristic for the Vienna Circle was that they they advocated the use of modern logic in philosophy, and they kind of came up with the idea of using probability theory as a you know fruitful tool in philosophy. Not just the Vienna Circle, I should say the logical empiricists more generally. There was also the Berlin group, for example, and also people in, in the UK and other parts of the world. But let me first say something about logic. I mean, the issue just arose because at that time modern logic was developed as a rigorous theory that didn't exist, you know, in the in the in the century before, for example. And what incredibly inspired the members of the Vienna circle, especially Carnap, was the success that mathematical logic brought about within mathematics. Let me say something about this, because I think it's important to understand the intellectual development here. So what mathematicians did at the end of the 19th century was to start thinking about mathematical theories from a mathematical point of view. So they started, looking at mathematical theories as mathematical objects in themselves and develop mathematical tools in order to prove things mathematically about mathematical theories so david hilbert was one of the key figures in that development so he proposed that we should look at math- we should study mathematics from a mathematical point of view and then prove things about mathematical theories so for example that they are consistent that they don't contain any contradictions. And that led to the development of modern logic. And then we saw you know, extremely influential and groundbreaking results being proved in that framework of modern logic. One example would be Gödel's theorem. Gödel showed that if you have any mathematical theory that contains arithmetic, so where you can calculate with natural numbers, and that theory is either inconsistent or it is incomplete in the sense that there are sentences in the language of the theory that you can't prove and you also can't refute in the theory and that holds for basically all theories right so if you have a, a consistent theory that is you know strong enough to be of any interest then um you know it's incomplete and it cannot complete it you can't just add axioms and then make it complete by that it was a very very influential theorem shows us something about the limits, the very limits of, of mathematics and well prove the difference between provability and truth. Another example would be Tarski's work in geometry. So what Tarski did was he formalized Euclidean geometry in predicate logic, first-order predicate logic, and demonstrated that um, you can come up with a decision procedure that that tells you, you know, uh, for any given sentence of the language of geometry, whether it is provable or refutable in geometry. And more than that, also whether it's true or false in geometry, because the axiomatis- axiomatization that Tarski came up with ha- has this nice uh, property that it isn't affected by Gödel's theorem. So in a sense, it doesn't contain arithmetic. It's just about, you know, lines and points and, you know, triangles and their relations. Um, another Key development was the, was the introduction of probability theory um, to philosophical inquiry. That was, I think, first done um, by Reichenbach in the Berlin group. But Carnap also worked a lot on inductive logic based on probability theory, and uh, and that was a key idea. I'll come back to that in a second. So that was the Vienna Circle, and and that's kind of where historically we find this this idea of applying mathematics in philosophy for the first time in a very explicit and strong way. But then, as you probably know, logical empiricism you know, was kind of overthrown. On the one hand, philosophically, there were many you know, people who had counter-arguments against basic assumptions of logical empiricists. But also in real life, the group was dispersed because of the Nazi uh, regime in Taking power in Austria, and then World War II. and then many of the you know uh, members of the Vienna Circle fled um, to the UK or to the United States. Some of them were killed. The Berlin Group, especially, was hit very hard. Only Reichenbach managed to escape, and I think von Mises. All the other members of the of the Berlin Group were basically killed by the Nazis. Uh, and the Polish group, you know, of logicians and, and philosophers of science, was also hit very hard. Tarski managed to escape to to California. That's why he, you know, we know him, and and he he was very influential. But for example, Janina Hosiason Lindenbaum, who was who was the person who came up with the Bayesian solution to the Raven Paradox, she was killed by the Gestapo, and she was, uh, you know, and also her husband, Lindenbaum, Adolf Lindenbaum. So that was a very very tragic and sad fate that that this, you know. These groups of logical empiricists faced, um, and it also, of course, you know, had a negative impact on on the you know availability of these views. If you kill all the teachers, right? I mean, who who is going to you know learn about these ideas? But still, I mean, the the ideas survived, and especially the methodological approach of using mathematics in philosophy survived. It survived in the UK and in the US. Also in, in Austria, for example, the university where I did my PhD in Salzburg, that was kind of one of the little small places where, where, where this kind of philosophy just lived on. And not so much in Germany, unfortunately. So since the Berlin group was basically exterminated, Germany kind of started catching up with analytic philosophy much later. But you know, in the UK, for example, for people like Frank Ramsey, who were influenced by Wittgenstein, um, these ideas and Especially Bayesianism was kept alive. The you know many of many of the ideas of the kind of specific um, assumptions that people in the Vienna Circle made, like the principle of verification, were given up later on, even by themselves. But the the, the methodological approach survived. This is a
0: very uh, very fascinating um, history. But I I do want to move also uh, to discuss the arguments in favor of yes uh, and against uh, using mathematical philosophy in particular, so I'm sure there's a lot more to be said on this history. But uh, I guess if you just give us a quick uh, run up for up to the current moment, so this is the Vienna Circle. Yeah. If you could just give us a quick uh, summary of the state of play at the moment and how the kind of strands of thought uh, in the early, early 20th century kind of culminated to what we have uh, in philosophy today.
2: Absolutely. Um, so, so I told you it would start rambling, and that's what happened. <laughs> But I was about to to come to exactly this point. So one of the big things that survived was the idea of using probability theory. And now the current state of play is basically that we have, on the one hand, the application of probability theory in philosophy. So in Bayesian epistemology, Bayesian philosophy of science, but also in decision theory and philosophy of economics. And on the other hand, we have the logic camp in, in in a wide sense of the word logic. But I think the So, that's kind of what survived from the Vienna Circle. And that's what kind of still dominates mathematical philosophy nowadays. But I think what's really new at the moment is that people are now starting to explore the full toolbox of mathematics for philosophical purposes. So, there's now a true revival of mathematical philosophy. That started a couple of years ago with the foundation of the Munich Center for Mathematical Philosophy, but also here at LSE. Um, You know, if you look at what people are working on, it's very much mathematical philosophy. Look at Christian List's work on judgment aggregation. That's mathematical philosophy in its best, um, you know, form. Anna Matani's work, you know, using probability theory. Jason Alexander's work based on game theory. Um, well, Miklos, of course, is a mathematical philosopher, and you know all the other philosophers of physics in the department. But also Liam is using formal mathematical tools to you know, study how, you know, social groups kind of can be um, studied from a from an epistemological perspective. Uh, Campbell Brown looks at how moral theories can be analyzed from a mathematical point of view, and the list continues. So it's very much alive, and you can kind of sort these two things into uh, different kind of branches of mathematics that are applied, but the new thing that, which is kind of where well, we're just at the beginning now is that we are trying to see which other tools apart from probability theory and logic so the dominant tools can be used for philosophy. So you mentioned category theory earlier Eric. That's one thing that I've been working on for example. But also philosophers generally don't know a lot yet about machine learning and and AI and we just keep you know kind of trying to keep up with these developments. And there's one interesting application I would like to mention. So my uh, colleague, Gerhard Schurz from Düsseldorf, I mean, he says that he solved the induction, the problem of induction using well probability theory and, and methods from machine learning. So he's written this brilliant new book called Hume's Problem Solved. And I mean, that sounds incredibly bold, of course. But um, you know that was just possible because of the discovery of these new methods, and because Gerhard was, uh, you know, brave enough to sit down and learn all these machine learning um, methods. Otherwise, you know, you you can't do that.
0: Could you just give a sense of? I'm not sure whether this is easy to do or not. Could you just give a sense or a sketch of the argument that he makes about how applying these tools solves this problem?
2: Oh, it's very complicated. But uh, let me try very briefly. Um, so the idea is to not justify induction directly either by a deductive proof or by well induction again which would be circular but rather to compare induction to rival ways of drawing drawing inferences and coming up with you know what what is the case in the world and if you do that you can kind of look at how an inductive learner would perform compared to other types of learners who, who use different methods, and then you can show that among the available methods, the, the inductive method is just the, the dominant one, the best one, and, and that's a justification of induction. So is the sense that,
0: for instance, is 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 the method for reasoning, is this encoded in the sort of priors and the way it updates the system? So, And then is the idea that if you have a system that has priors that looks more like it places a lot of weight on the world, um, the simple worlds that uh, where the past resembles the future, and then you run these different systems against, and you see the, um, and you compare their performance against like some kind of loss function. You can see that some when you do induction, uh, this minimizes a loss function. Is that roughly the idea? If I'm roughly,
2: it? yeah, roughly that's the idea. So you compare the an inductive learner against other types of agents use different methods uh, and, and then it turns out then you can prove by means of you know some fancy mathematics that the inductive learner is you know uh, dominant um that's incredibly that's incredibly interesting yeah isn't it um, um
0: so so uh, just to make sure i got the picture so that was a fascinating tour of the history of mathematical philosophy the early phase where philosophy is sort of inspired by mathematical rigor with people of spinoza and Bolzano. And then we have the later phase where mathematics is used directly as a tool and most prominently by the Vienna Circle. And at the moment, uh, in the current state of things, logic and Bayesian methods uh, dominate uh, in mathematical philosophy. But in recent years, there is more exploration of using these uh, different mathematical tools from the various different yeah. disciplines to approach
2: exactly. philosophical. Exactly, yeah. Okay, and so really all of that's really
0: helpful. Um, but I guess I wanted to talk a bit about, so going forward, as yeah. you say, we're kind of at the special moment where we're seeing a proliferation of exploration into, into these different uh, mathematical methods. So maybe a background question is whether this is even a good idea in the first yeah. place or whether we should be looking at other research directions.
2: So yeah. could, you,
0: could you just say, what's, what are the key arguments for
2: why this is a good idea? Yeah, let's talk about um, why, why we should use mathematical methods and philosophy and what speaks against it. So the, the key advantages, I think, are, first of all, that using mathematical tools improves the clarity and rigor of, you know, of, the, of the architecture of your ideas. So it really forces you to kind of put your cards on the table, and that forces you to open yourself to criticism, and also it allows you to find flaws much more easily if you, you know, present something in a really rigorous way. That's one uh, advantage another advantage is that using mathematics can kind of allow interdisciplinarity and can serve as a mathematics can serve as a as a common language for you know people from coming from very different backgrounds with very different prior background knowledge to kind of exchange ideas effectively so it's also a good way of enabling philosophers to work together with, say, psychologists or, you know, computer scientists um, or whatever, you know, you're interested in or economists because they're also all using maths and that's, that's a huge benefit, I think. A third advantage is that using mathematical methods and philosophy enables us to do what scientists have done for centuries, namely to construct mathematical models for the things we're interested in. And if you look at the history of science that was an incredibly important step to mathematize certain problems to be able to approach them in a more rigorous way. I mean f- imagine doing physics without any maths. There's not much hope. Um, economy, economics or also epidemiology, you know, use mathematical modeling, you know, heavily. Climate science the same. And you know, every empirical discipline uses statistics. So it's all over the place, and now the idea is that maybe using mathematical methods more could do the same for philosophy. Maybe many philosophical problems actually have some, you know, deeper mathematical structure, and then finding the right mathematical tools doesn't have to be probability theory, doesn't have to be logic. Just finding the right mathematical tools to analyze that stru- structure could, you know, give philosophy the same boost that, say, physics got by by using mathematics heavily. So that's kind of the promise or the the hope.
0: Yeah, so I find this picture, uh, I find this view very uh, compelling and I have this rough picture of what sort of um, success stories or intellectual progress looks like in philosophy. Whereas it's you start with this uh, kind of confused notion, for instance, pre 16th century, you can have these confused notions about how you should react to, respond to certain bets, whether certain bets are good ideas or not, how to deal with chance events. But then you start to clarify things. And the peak of clarification is when you uh, formalize this area and you have a specific formal system. So when you develop probability theory, you deal with it. And after this point where the heavy philosophical lifting is done, then you have this formal system and the mathematicians uh, and logicians can get to work and just and the system proof theorems about the system and then we eventually come to see this area as not even philosophy we come to yeah. see this area as a part of mathematics or part of statistics or part of computer science yeah. so i have a sense that a lot of the greatest success stories in philosophy are kind of overlooked because we just they've done the hard work and it's become so successful they've just become a part of yeah it
2: became independent
0: yeah or um uh predicate logic things like that. do you agree with this sense of, of this rough picture?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's exactly the idea that mathematical philosophers have in mind. Now look at logic, right? So first we had, you know, these rough, you know, theories of logical consequence that well, we find in all cultures, I mean, different systems, but you know, we we find it everywhere. But then things change drastically when mathematicians start to look at logic from a mathematical point of view and give a mathematical explication of logical consequence. And then what happened was, well, we get a rigorous definition of truth in in set theory by Tarski. We get, um, you know, proper deductive systems, um, you know, with clear rules and with, you know, soundness and completeness proofs and all of that. And then computer science kind of develops kind of on the basis of logic, right, from Gödel's theorem and then Turing's results, and then becomes independent. And now we have all these, you know, we have this nice software, Zoom, right, which is an algorithm, and we have these nice smartphones and everything. And all of that basically, you know, has its roots in logical uh, discoveries, right, in, in progress that has been made first in philosophy um, and then it kind of became independent many examples of that sort
1: I wanted to ask as well so like certain so obviously with kind of analytic philosophy it seems like there's a much more natural progression towards a more mathematical interpretation of of how we do philosophy Mm -hmm. but I'm not sure that this extends to to kind of all branches of philosophy Um, and so kind of things that I had in mind of was you know in, in philosophy of religion, for instance, where you have throughout history, mathematicians kind of trying to, to say, well, look, if we can compare the infinite to, to God's presence or, or uh, Bayes' Beige, theorem, which was, I think, yeah. originally intended to like prove the existence of God. I think also there's kind of a, a worry that with, with this mathematical philosophy, I think, you know, this is seen quite clearly in the case of the logical empiricists, for example, that to what extent are we just reducing philosophy to this theory of kind of just just maths and 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 logic i'm i'm quite keen to see kind of the the maybe the the downside of a mathematical theory or its kind of places where it can't be applied
2: yeah that's an excellent point so so this is one of the main reasons actually why many people also in philosophy are very skeptical about mathematical philosophy so one of the main ideas is just what you said that there are many topics that just don't have this mathematical structure so you know we talked about logic and philosophy of science now all the time but what about aesthetics what about religious belief what about what's morally right how should we be able to make progress on these issues by means of mathematical tools so the idea is that mathematical tools uh so th- there are topics in philosophy the important topics in philosophy and they they, they lie outside the scope of these mathematical tools. That's the objection. Now, there are two responses to this objection by mathematical philosophers. The first response is that, well, that might just be due to a lack of training or imagination on your side, if you, you know, make that objection. So, uh Karina, you you already gave a great example. So for example in philosophy of religion, mathematical methods have been used quite extensively since the middle ages basically, um when when you know philosophers started to construct proofs for the existence of God, right? But then people started to continue doing that with much better, much more rigorous mathematical methods. Um I mentioned Bolzano, but also Gödel, you know, our hero in modern logic. I mean he he gave a proof for the existence of God in, in higher order modal logic and it's fascinating but also in aesthetics I mean already the ancient Greeks I mean um, you know Pythagoras I mean that basic idea was that there are these mathematical relationships underlying our um, aesthetic experiences. Right? Everybody kind of is touched by music in some way and we can tell the difference between a minor and a major um, um, chord. Um, and it's direct. But what the difference between these things is, is a difference in mathematical structure, in mathematical well, harmony. And harmony and all these sorts of things can be analyzed mathematically. There is a very uh, interesting um, book by a Swiss mathematician, uh, or Italian, Quirino Mazzola. It's called The Topos of Music, where he basically gives a geometric logical analysis of of music in very sophisticated terms. So the basic idea is that in order to understand Mozart properly, you need to know algebraic geometry. Then you really get what's going on in Mozart. Uh, And the same in ethics. I mean, I already mentioned Campbell's work on, on ethical theories. Mathematical Tools can shed great light and clarify things a lot when we talk about different ethical theories and try to compare them to each other. Or also, you know, utilitarianism is basically, you know, applied uh, maths. Um, you know, very simple, right? Because it's just about utility functions and that. But that's it. And also in the ontic logic, I mean, uh, we have seen great progress based on mathematical methods. So, for example, in order to really understand the you know, UN Declaration of Human Rights, you need quite a bit of sophisticated deontic logic to analyze these things properly. That's something that um, Stick and Helle Kanger have shown. So that's the first response. So, actually, no, in all these areas, we might be able to use mathematical methods. And we maybe just don't know which mathematical tools to use yet because we don't know mathematics well enough. But there's no, in principle, reason why some area shouldn't be uh, open to. The application of mathematical tools.
0: So, unfortunately, we're running up against some time constraints. So, I'd love to get your thoughts on two brief questions before we move on to the next section. Uh, First, what is your all things considered view on whether mathematical philosophy is a good idea going forward? And second, what in your view are promising future directions for the field of mathematical philosophy?
2: Yes. Um, So, to sum up, I would say that it is definitely true that mathematical tools can be useful and philosophy. There are many examples that show that. And second, I think that in some cases, mathematical tools are even necessary because the nature of the problem is such that without mathematical tools, you just can't solve it. Having said that, I would stress that the claim is not that mathematics alone can answer all of the questions. Mathematics is one tool, but it's not the only tool we have. And definitely, the, the, the idea is not that we can answer things like what's wrong or right purely in mathematical terms, but we can shed light on these questions and make them clearer and see their relationships to other issues by using mathematical tools. And that's the great advantage i think
1: thank you so much so um so we have a few signature questions that we ask all our um guests on the podcast uh these are kind of light-hearted but we hope for to be uh informative questions <laughs> Great. for listening to to the podcast so, uh, the first question is, so obviously, you know, we've talked extensively about how relevant mathematical philosophy is for, for both mathematicians, philosophers, and even physicists and economists. So, really, what are the most promising research directions that inspired um, graduate students could pursue in this area?
2: In mathematical philosophy? Oh, well, based on what I said before, the possibilities are endless. We're just really at the beginning now. We need to, I think, learn uh, more diverse mathematical methods to to see what we can do with them. But in particular, if you you know, if you ask me, you know, which things could be fruitful to look at, I think that taking a closer look at machine learning and AI could be something that would be very fruitful in the future. I think we need to understand these things properly as philosophers. Um, to understand, well, things that we're doing from a moral perspective better, but also, you know, it raises interesting philosophy of science questions about the, you know, predictive models that we're using in many areas of society nowadays. Um, so that's one particular uh, branch that I find very interesting and that I'm also um, starting to work on at the moment. There are many other questions, of course, Um
1: of course. So the next question is: So if you could ask one question to a super intelligent oracle, what question would you ask?
0: Oh wow! You're not allowed to answer uh, with an ordered pair, by the way. That's one of the conditions
2: of the, <laughs> of the question. So so does the answer have to be a yes/no answer, or can I ask for
1: whatever question you would you would ask, really?
2: Okay, and then I would ask for what's the true theory? of the world. I guess that would be very informative, <laughs> if there is a unique one. So that question is a presupposition that there's a unique one. Um, so maybe I don't get an answer.
1: Great. Thank you so much. Um, so we have one final question, and then we're going to open it up um, to, to other questions from people who are also on this call. And so the last question before that is, which person has had the greatest influence on your own thinking as
2: huh. a whole? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I think it might be. I think it might be Hannes Leitgeb, the founder of the uh, uh, Munich Center for Mathematical Philosophy. I mean, he was my second PhD supervisor, but that's not really the reason why. I just. I don't know. Hannes is a is a real intellectual force. So if you talk to him, and if you you know listen to him speaking, all of a sudden things just become so much clearer. And and I think that experience i think that had a profound influence in me that this this kind of clarity is possible and and i think ever since i i've met him i'm kind of you know striving for that type of clarity
1: could you tell us a bit more about um where um about his research and and where interested students could could go to to learn more
2: oh to munich (laughs) (laughs) um so um so they offer a great MSc program, of course, and also PhD students and visitors are welcome all the time. So Hannes works on many things. I mean, he's a logician um, originally. He's worked on truth. So he's a truth theorist. He's worked on Bayesianism, probability theory. Um, he has this book on the lottery paradox, right, where he solves, presents a solution to the lottery paradox. You know that from PH104, I know, Karina. <laughs> <laughs> um, He's worked on artificial neural networks and their relationship with logic already quite a while ago, before you know the hype really, you know, started to, to get serious. He's worked on structuralism in the philosophy of mathematics. Um yeah, I mean it's very broad. So if you're interested in any of these things or just mathematical philosophy in general, um, you know, just You know, attend a conference at the MCMP or just, you know, go there for a term or so. Um, um, Or, you know, do a master's there. Um, That's definitely definitely something I could recommend.
1: Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for that. Um, So just looking at some of the questions that we've been receiving now. So the first question is, how can one use mathematical philosophy in their everyday life?
2: Ah. Huh. That's a difficult one. Um, I guess I guess if you use certain mathematical methods a lot, then you just then, then they become somehow ingrained in your way of thinking and you kind of spot flaws in arguments um, all the time. So for example, you know when the Black Lives Matter um, movement started to become, you know uh, um, a thing in the US, there was this objection and people said, ah, you say black lives matter, but what about my life and I'm white? And that was such a clear logical fallacy, right? Because they, they don't get the difference between if and only if, right? Or, you know, black lives matter is not logically equivalent to only black lives matter. Um, So, uh, you know, things like that, That's that's very straightforward, of course, if you, if you kind of, if you're trained in, in, in using logic, but also yeah. Bayesian methods.
1: You um, see the world every day, in terms of mathematical structures and logical fallacies.
2: Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it changes the way you view the world, definitely, and it changes the way you think. I mean, there are other examples I could give, but in a sense, you 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 start seeing certain structures. That you wouldn't see if you hadn't thought about these structures from a mathematical perspective, and I think that that's extremely helpful um, to be able to well, it, it, yeah, well, to to gain some clarity uh, in this way.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Yes. So the next question concerns this reductive notion of, of mm. using mathematics in philosophy and really to what extent does um, can philosophy be reduced to mathematics and you know what are the kind of background assumptions of that like do yeah. we need to be realists about mathematics to to yeah. use this type of philosophy or or can we is it possible to do it from an empirical perspective
2: mm. um so the two different questions here I think uh, let me say something about the first reductive the reductive use of of mathematics. I think that just doesn't work. Um, so I think that it's, it's a false hope to think that by using mathematical tools alone, we can answer all the philosophical questions. That's not the idea that a, um, a mathematical philosopher um, in, uh, you know, should pursue. Rather, we should use mathematical methods as one tool, um, but there are other tools as well. So most mathematical philosophers are lo- um, method pluralists. They just think that, you know, you've got this problem, and then in order to tackle this problem, you you can use any methods you like, including mathematical methods. And um, and also, you know, there are other methods that one could choose, and there is no need to, to use purely mathematical methods. That's not a view that I think anybody endorses. But that's a very... Um, uh, common objection and i think misunderstanding of the of the position. the second question was about assumptions about the the nature of well on, of mathematics so phlo- assumptions about the philosophy of mathematics and whether mathematical philosophy presupposes any such uh, positions. And here I would say the answer is no. And there are mathematical philosophers of different breeds, right? Some are um, nominalists, some are um, um, Platonists in the philosophy of mathematics, but they still all use the mathematical methods. And actually, uh, Rudolf Carnap addressed this issue quite explicitly um, in an early paper called uh, as it's called Empiricism, Semantics, and Ontology, I think, because many of his you know, empiricist friends were worried that by you know, using all these mathematical machinery all the time, we're committing ourselves to unobservable non-empirical objects and beliefs about them that we cannot verify by empirical means. So how is that consistent with strict empiricism? In this paper, basically, Carlup tried to, to calm them down and to 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 show that we don't have to worry about these ontological questions when we apply mathematics in practice, just as you know the applied mathematician in statistics doesn't worry about whether Platonism is true or nominalism is true. Um, these are philosophical questions in their own right, but they are kind of uh, the application of mathematics is independent of these.
0: I have a question that's uh, related to, I guess you just said that sort of mathematical philosophy is pretty agnostic about like substantive commitments in philosophy of mathematics. But Do you have any thoughts on Max Tegmark's mathematical universe hypothesis where it's, you know, reality just is a mathematical structure and every mathematical structure uh, exists? Maybe this can go some way into explaining if people find it surprising that mathematical tools can be so fruitful in uh, us explaining the world and things. Do you have any thoughts about this?
2: Yeah, I do. So, so how should I put this? Um, so I think it's crazy um, to think that the world itself is a mathematical structure or a collection of mathematical structures. But, but uh, you know, I, I have the impression that, that he just exaggerates um, this idea or puts it in the wrong way. I think there is some grain of truth in it that, you know, there are certain structures, that we find in nature that have, you know, close similarity to mathematical structures that we can study in maths. I mean, you know, look at flowers, you'll you'll find the Fibonacci series everywhere, or crystals and all these things. I mean, that's a good explanation of why physics works so well, because, you know, certain mathematical structures are instantiated in nature, at least approximately. And that, I think, is not a crazy idea. Um, it's not the case that mathematical philosophy is committed to this idea. Um, but as Eric, as you say, I mean, if that's the case that w- w- certain mathematical structures are instantiated in nature, that explains very, very well why physics has to use maths all the time, right? To figure out what you know what these systems are doing. And in a similar way. If certain mathematical structures are instantiated in philosophical problems, then that would also explain why um, mathematical philosophy works so well. But I think we don't have to commit ourselves to these assumptions in order to do physics by mathematical means or philosophy by mathematical means. Um, It's a neat explanation of why it works. But I think you can do it, nevertheless, even if that's not the right explanation. Um, It might just be a coincidence, um, crudely put, that it works.
0: But if we look out there and we see that mathematical structures are instantiated all over the place, what's to stop us from just going all the way and going to a simple picture where reality is just a mathematical structure? I guess it does seem pretty crazy, but David Lewis said you can't refute (laughs) an incredible stare. So do you have... Um, Do you have a sort of of main objection? that's more than just it's pretty intuitively um, absurd?
2: Um, Yeah, so I guess it would mess up our kind of ordinary conception of the world quite radically, right? Because normally we have this idea that we have the real world, something that we can experience and something that we can, you know, learn about by our senses. And then we have these uh, and you know, the things we find in the real world are in space and time. and you know uh, and, and, and we can kind of you know have sensory information about them. But mathematical structures on the on the usual view are outside of space and time. I shouldn't say outside, that sounds strange, right? Um, uh, if there was something outside of space. Um, so they they're not in space and time. They're aspatio-temporal. And they don't have any causal connections to each other or to other things. But there are causal connections between, um, uh, well, you know, real objects in the, in the, in, in, in the spatial-temporal world. So and I think collapsing this distinction isn't very helpful. And that's what basically um, this theory is doing, that the world is a mathematical structure. I think, you know, you can't do that, but it doesn't help you. With anything, it's not very fruitful to do this, and by kind of erasing that distinction, you you become unable to you know explain or you know conceptually grasp many things that we usually care about. So I think it's not a very fruitful move. It's not that I can refute that that's the case. How how could I? Right. It's not an empirical hypothesis, but I don't think from a conceptual framework choice perspective it's a very fruitful thing to do. I think the more um, nuanced conceptual framework that we have with these conceptual distinctions between mathematical reality and and kind of physical reality, um, that's a more useful one for our purposes.
0: Okay, great. So we're probably not just a mathematical object then. Uh, On that comforting note, uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Professor Lawrence Huditz.
2: Thank you, um, and thanks a lot for organizing this. Um, I really enjoyed this. I think you're doing a great job, um, uh, you know, bringing people together and think about philosophical issues. Well done. Thanks so much, everybody.